Okay, as Pastor Tim uh, mentioned earlier tonight, we're continuing on in our uh, series on gospel-shaped mercy. And since all of these sessions kind of build on each other, I thought it would be good again to uh, do a quick review of where we've been before we uh, go to, uh, to the next topic of the evening. And the first session, Pastor Chad introduced the series on mercy by describing the true peace of shalom and how that peace was part of God's original creation, and that's what we will experience in his future kingdom. As believers, we have peace in our hearts and minds, but we still live in a world that is not at peace with God. Sin vandalized and destroyed the shalom of his kingdom. But as God's people, we will see that again. He also broached the topic of justice, not only as punishing those who do wrong, but it is also sets conditions or laws that make for peace and fairness. And we'll talk more about fairness and justice as we go through the evening tonight. Mike Knaus discussed the topic of love, and our target of our love should be God rather than the world. We have a choice to make. We either love the evil one or we love God. In Jesus, we see the perfect model of love. And Craig Semon tied those subjects together in his discussion on mercy last week. It's love in action on the behalf of those in need. Although some Christians consider mercy an optional practice, it has eternal significance and is universally important. Mercy is the ultimate test of faith. It is evidence that one is a Christian, and we do it because we are Christians. So the topic for tonight is generosity, stewarding God's money. So I hope that you will see how generosity is a faith-given expression of peace, justice, love, and mercy. You'll see several examples of how the Bible connects generosity to the topic of justice. Although we'll be spending most of our time in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, I did want to take a few minutes to reiterate a few things that Stephen Um discussed in the video in James chapter 2, 1 through 10, and that should help us set a foundation for where we're going for the rest of the evening. Now, James starts this passage by chastising his readers about showing favoritism, or some might call discrimination, based on economic status. He writes specifically about praising those who use their wealth for unjust purposes, especially for the poor. More important than the injustices that the rich impose on the poor is that when James's readers show favoritism towards the rich man, they actually dishonor the poor man. As we see in verse 6, James reminds them that God chose those who were poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs to the kingdom. Now, money does not provide identity, as we heard tonight. We must understand our identity within the context of the gospel. We have no standing with God because of what we have or what we have achieved in this world. We have standing before God only through the sacrificial death and resurrection of Jesus and our acceptance of that free gift of salvation through faith as the Apostle Paul wrote in Ephesians chapter 2. James chapter 2 
And Corinthians chapter 8 give examples of how we should treat the poor. The poor have a special place in God's kingdom. As we see through a variety of passages in both the Old and the New Testaments. Now our lesson will center around our interactions with the poor and our generosity to the poor tonight. But the principles are the same uh, with anyone with whom we ever interact. So we've been talking about our attitude toward money and how money has no impact on our standing before God. How does our attitude toward money then relate to our practice of generosity? Well, I contend that our attitude toward money is expressed in our attitude and behavior towards others, especially the poor. At this point, it's worth looking at a definition of what we call generosity. It's a dictionary definition, but it does serve our point for the evening. The dictionary definition of generosity is that generosity is showing a readiness to give more of something, be it time or money, than is strictly necessary or expected. Now, generosity can be shown in many ways, including time, talents, and resources. We'll be discussing money specifically tonight, but the concept of generosity extends to all of our interactions with those around us. As we look at the definition, we see that generosity is a readiness or willingness to give. The Apostle Paul writes in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 18 and 19, that the rich in the present age should do good to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. We who have material possessions should be willing and ready to share with those around us. That goes towards our heart attitude, not only about money, but anyone with whom we deal with at any given time. Finally, we see that what we are willing to give should be more than what is necessary or expected. If we give someone what we owe them, that is simply a duty. When we give beyond what is expected, it is showing love and mercy through generosity. So let's look at an example of generosity and what some of the benefits are of being generous. If you'll uh, turn in your Bibles now to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, we'll start with verse 1. So uh, just follow along with me as I read the first few verses. It starts out, We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urge Titus that as he started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, 
And in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. Paul is writing to the church in Corinth about a special offering that he and his ministry team are collecting as part of Paul's third missionary journey. The money is to be used to help the saints that are in Judea who are suffering in poverty at that time. He also wanted this offering to strengthen the churches and the unity of the church as the Gentile churches shared with the Jewish congregations. Paul held up the churches of Macedonia, those in Philippi, Thessalonica, and Berea, as an example of what generosity should look like. The people in those churches were in extreme poverty and affliction. And some commentators suggest that it is because of their faith that they were persecuted, had lost their jobs and income, and are now suffering in their poverty. Yet, even in their poverty and affliction, they wanted to participate in this offering, even to the point of begging to do so. So what was their motivation for wanting to participate in the offering? They certainly did not have the means to show off their wealth to the rest of the world. And although I'm not certain of this, they probably didn't, have, didn't even know anyone in Judea that Paul was trying to help. And again, I don't know this for certain either, but I doubt that there was an opportunity for them to itemize their contribution as a deduction on their tax return. So, what then caused them to so earnestly desire to participate in this offering? The Macedonian churches were very well aware of the grace that God had shown them. The grace of God's undeserved kindness, or grace is God's undeserved kindness to them in saving them through Jesus. The group was so overwhelmed by the generosity of God towards them that they were moved to give generously to others. It's a natural part of their discipleship. And ultimately, their generosity is an act of worship. Verse 3 says that the believers in the Macedonian churches gave according to their means and even beyond their means. We already know that they were suffering deep affliction and poverty, yet their gift was according to their means and even beyond. Now, giving beyond their means is an interesting statement. Does that mean that they went into debt to give to the offering? Probably not. First of all, it would have been unlikely that anyone would have loaned money to the people in the Macedonian churches to contribute to an offering to Jewish believers in Judea, especially if, they're, uh, if they were being afflicted because of their faith. It's more likely that they gave in a way that hurt their lifestyle, as meager as it may have been, or have required them to cancel or delay some of their personal plans and goals. Those outside the church would have probably looked at their generosity and thought that their gift was ridiculous considering their level of poverty. It's also evident from verse 5 that the motivation was placed correctly. They gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. They were not trying to impress Paul or Titus or anyone else in their group. They were honoring God in what they were doing, and they considered it a joy to show mercy and generosity towards the Jewish believers. As you may be seeing through this example, the motivation of the heart to worship God through this this generous gift is of utmost importance. 
The generosity in the Macedonian churches is a fantastic testimony to the abundant grace that God had shown uh, to the Macedonian believers. So the next question to be asked then is, why did Paul write about this to the Corinthian church? Well, simply stated, it was Paul's intent to use this account to help motivate the Corinthian church to also be generous in their participation in this special offering. Now, at first glance, that may appear like Paul is using uh, the generosity of the Macedonian churches as leverage or even shame uh, to make the Corinthian church contribute to the special offering. If that was the case, there would certainly be no mercy, no love, and no worship in, uh, in the Corinthian church participating simply as a response to these strong-arm tactics. However, Paul provides the background behind this part of the passage in verses 8 through 14. Verse 8 starts by saying, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that by his poverty you might become rich. And in this matter, I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. Now, so now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have. For I I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. We see in verse 10 that the Corinthian church had agreed and desired to contribute to the special offering, But a year later, they hadn't completed the task of gathering the money for that offering. The fact that the Corinthian church had shown a desire to contribute to the offering shows that Paul was not trying to intimidate them or force them to participate. The Corinthian church, even with all its problems, had a lot of good things going for it. Verse 7 says they excelled in faith, in speech, and in knowledge. And Paul wants them to, use, to pursue excellence in the grace of generosity as well. Their generosity would be an outward expression of the love that they have for God and their fellow believers in Judea. Paul taught in verse 7 that giving was an act of grace, and that it is an essential part of spiritual growth. Verses 8 through 14 expand on that idea. The first phrase in verse 8 says... I say this not as a command. I have to admit, I read right over that the first time I uh, read through this in preparation for this message. But it is an extremely important part of this passage. Paul wants their participation in the offering to be of their own accord, rather than having it forced upon them. If you recall the definition of generosity I shared earlier, You see that generous giving is giving that goes beyond what is necessary and required. Generous giving is motivated by grace, 
not by external forces or compulsion. Now we can look back at the Macedonian churches for some of the characteristics of giving that is motivated by grace. First, we give in spite of our circumstances. The Macedonian churches experienced affliction and deep poverty. They had nothing, and humanly speaking, they really had no hope of getting anything. Second, we give enthusiastically. The Macedonian believers were very willing to take part in the offering. As we saw in verse 4, they actually begged Paul to be part of it. The giving was voluntary and spontaneous. It was grace, not pressure, that motivated them to give to the offering. Grace not only frees us from our sins, but frees us from ourselves. Our giving is not the result of cold calculation, but of a warm-hearted jubilation. Third, we give the way Jesus gave, motivated by love. Verse 9 shows the love and grace shown by the Lord Jesus, that though he was rich, yet for our sake he became poor, so that we by his poverty might become rich. The Macedonian believers gave themselves to God and to others. So if we give ourselves to God, it will be little problem for us to give ourselves to others. The Corinthian church had many spiritual gifts. It appears, however, that they had neglected the graces of the Spirit, including the grace of giving. Fourth, we give willingly. Grace giving must be from a willing heart. It cannot be coerced or forced. However, we must not confuse willing with doing. If there is a genuine grace given will to give, then the gift must also be given. Paul's statement in verses 11 and 12 speak to that. He instructs the Corinthian believers to follow through on their promise to give. It is not enough to simply promise to give, but that it is necessary to actually do it. And fifth, we give by faith. It's an interesting phrase, we give by faith, and one that's been used and, should I say, abused in many ways. Are we to give with what we do not have? Well, in verses 11 and 12 again, we see that we are to give out of what we do have. The gift is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he doesn't have, as Paul writes. So giving by faith means that we can and do trust God to provide for our needs as we use God's resources to supply the needs of others. Pastor Warren Worsby provides a nice summary of what he calls grace giving, the name that he has given to what we are talking about tonight. So Pastor Worsby writes, Grace is a matter of faith. We obey God and believe that he will meet our needs as we help to meet the needs of others. Paul did not lay down a mathematical formula because grace giving is not limited to the 10% tithe. Grace giving is systematic but not legalistic. It is not satisfied with only the minimum, whatever that minimum might be. So verses 13 and 14 in 2 Corinthians 8 further describe the grace giving and the benefits that it supplies or provides not only to the receiver, but the giver as well. 
It says, For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but as a matter of fairness, your abundance in the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need so that there will be fairness. We see that there's a lot more going on here than just simply giving to the offering for the impoverished believers in Judea. In both verses 13 and 14, Paul uses the word fairness, and fairness implies justice. You may have heard the saying that you may possess many things, but you own nothing. God is the owner of all, just as we heard in the video tonight, and he entrusts some of his gifts to us for a short while. That fact allows us to think of our giving not as a matter of charity, but as a matter of justice. Stephen Um, the speaker in this video series, made a comment that speaks to this distinction. He says, Generosity is not simply a matter of charity, but of justice. If my money was my money, it would be simply a matter of my preference, then my giving to the poor would be charity. But my money is God's money, which makes it a matter of principle and makes my failure to be generous an act of injustice, a mismanagement of the resources with which I have been entrusted. I hope I've shown, at least to a small extent, what generosity is and what it looks like. I also hope that the connection between generosity and peace Justice, love, and mercy are very real. If you get nothing more out of this lesson tonight, I hope that you see that generosity or grace-giving is not a matter of obligation, but a matter of a heart attitude shaped by the grace that God so richly bestowed upon us. We do not have to be in any specific economic status or social class in order to practice generosity. It should be an outward expression of our worship to the one true God that has given us everlasting life. So the concept of generosity and grace-giving are very clear in Scripture. And we spent most of the night so far uh, describing what that is. Now the way in which we can and should practice generosity deserves some discussion as well. While it is true that grace-giving means giving by faith, it does not mean giving by chance. The Christian who shares with others should try to ensure that what he gives is managed honestly and faithfully. Paul was very sensitive to the need to be completely above board with how that offering was collected and ultimately distributed. I believe there's an implication that we, as those who give need to be diligent to know to whom we give our money and how it is being used. A commentator I read told a story of a man who gave money to a ministry even after his pastor warned him not to do it. A few weeks later, the man came back to the pastor and said, that group that I gave the money to didn't even exist. But he rationalized it by saying, hey, God knows my heart, so I'll get my reward in heaven. Caution you that rationalizing like that might not be the the correct biblical response. There are many false and otherwise dishonest groups that claim to be ministries or other charities or relief agencies. 
We need only look back a few months to, the, to see how many so-called relief agencies appeared after the hurricanes in Texas, Florida, and Puerto Rico. We also heard a number of reports of people getting sucked in for the appeal for funds only to have those funds stolen and used for personal gain. Now I'm going to give a few examples of how our responsibility toward proper stewardship of giving might look. A few of these examples are from First Baptist Church, as well as some examples from some other churches, and I'm sure you can think of many others. First, a general recommendation when considering where to give money is to give to a trusted organization rather than an individual. Most organizations will use those donated funds to provide services rather than provide cash directly to individuals. First Baptist Church follows that process in most cases when we have the opportunity to share our resources outside of the local church. A simple but effective example is that although we support a number of individual missionaries across the world, we distribute funds from First Baptist Church to their sponsoring missions agency. That provides not only a good financial accountability between our local church and the missionary, but the missions agency then provides the necessary administrative services, such as payroll, insurance, taxes, retirement, and all those things that First Baptist Church is really not well-equipped to provide. And that's certainly a much better use of our money uh, than to try to do all those uh, uh, services that we're not really uh, prepared and adequate to do. Now, pastor and author Timothy Keller, in his book, Generous Justice, provides an example of how this might look uh, even at uh, a more local level. In a church that he had pastored, there was a single mother of four that was in severe financial difficulty. The deacons of that church offered to provide financial assistance to her by help to, so that helping her pay some of her bills and help her get back on her feet. However, after a few months, they discovered that she had used the church's money on things other than what it was intended, including things like junk food, eating out at restaurants, and even buying bicycles for all of her children. As you might imagine, the deacons were not at all happy about that. And their initial reaction was to discontinue helping the woman. However, after further discussion with the woman, they discovered that she had felt so terribly guilty for the poor life that she was giving her kids. When she had the church's money in her hand, she gave in to the temptation to use it in ways other than how it was intended. So then the deacons then started working with her to establish a spending plan and putting some financial disciplines into her life including paying some of those bills and needs directly, such as rent, insurance, or utilities, or whatever that need might be, at least for a while, until uh, they could get those financial disciplines uh, instilled into her. Pastor Keller's concluding remark to that story is that it is important that our aid to the poor really helps them and doesn't create dependency. That is also the main concept of the book, When Helping Hurts, that you've heard about many times from here uh, at First Baptist Church. And it is also the way that Beacon of Hope Family Care Center tries to use its funds to help those that are in need. At First Baptist, it is rare that money from the deacon's fund is given directly to an individual. Instead, 
The money is given directly toward the expressed need, such as a utility bill, a medical bill, or whatever that need may be. And we also work to make sure that if the need is larger than what First Baptist can provide, that there are other partners that are able to help make or to complete the, uh, uh, the need so that there is at least some assurance that the uh, funds actually go to meet that need rather than just be given away without accomplishing its purpose. Now, there are certainly exceptions to this recommendation, but giving to individuals, especially if you're not sure how well they will handle those gifts, should not routinely be done. So far tonight, we've talked about our attitude toward money and our responsibility as individuals in generously stewarding God's money. There's another side to this process, however, and that's how those who receive our gifts handle those funds. They bear a lot of responsibility on how they handle the gifts of God's people. In addition to how a church or ministry uses its funds, it's important that they practice a high level of financial accountability. 2 Corinthians 8, 16 through 21 shows how important this accountability is to Paul. Now, Paul did not accept and handle the money for the special offering all by himself. He had an entire group of people, including Titus and another unnamed individual whom the Corinthian church respected, with them to help collect the funds and maintain the security on those funds. In verses 20 and 21, we see why Paul did that. Verse 20 says, We take this course so that no one should blame us about the generous gift that is being administered by us. For we aim at what is honorable not only in the Lord's sight, but also in the sight of man. The passage describes some of the qualifications for people who handle God's money. They need to have a God-given desire to serve, first of all. We see in verses 16 and 17 that God put into the heart of Titus the desire to serve. He not only accepted this responsibility to go to the Corinthian church to receive the offering, but was willing to do so of his own accord. Second, a person who is responsible to handle God's money should have a burden for lost souls. That keeps the prior priorities straight. For example, the unnamed brother in verse 18 was intent on preaching the gospel. And closely associated with having a burden for lost souls is having a desire to honor God. As we see in verse 19, one of the most important things a church can do is to use its money for spiritual ministry. And certainly, Anyone entrusted with handling God's money must have a reputation for honesty and a cooperative spirit. Personal accountability and group accountability are vital in receiving and using gifts of God's people, as we see in verses 20 and 21. Now, I want to assure you that First Baptist Church has many safeguards in place to ensure accountability in receiving and distributing uh, the generous gifts that you as a congregation make. Practices like having at least two ushers take the morning offering down to the counting room and signing a form stating that they brought the offering to them is a simple but important example. Our practice is that no one is ever left alone with the offering. 
There are at least two or three counters to organize the offering so that another group can take that offering to the bank. All money handling is documented every week. Similarly, we strive to do all transactions using accepted accounting practices. We have several checks and balances to make sure that we are using your gifts responsibly. Now, this congregation is very generous in their giving to the Deacons Fund each month. The Deacons have a designated subcommittee that reviews all requests and approves expenditures so that the burden of making those decisions does not fall on just one person in the office. And we do our best to use the Deacons Fund as an opportunity for ministering to others rather than just giving our money away. So as we finish our discussion on generosity and stewardship tonight, I hope that you've seen the necessary and proper heart attitude toward giving. It should not be out of compulsion, but out of a love for God. A verse that may have already come to your mind is 2 Corinthians 9, verse 7, which says, Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Warren Wiersbe, in his commentary on 2 Corinthians 8, sums up the importance of generosity. He writes, When you learn to give by grace, through faith, just the way you were saved, you start to experience a wonderful liberation from things and from circumstances. Instead of things possessing you, you start to control them, and you develop a new set of values and priorities. So as Pastor Mike comes up with the worship team, let's close in a word of prayer. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for giving us instruction on generosity in your word. It is such an integral part of the practice of mercy, and it is a very tangible way that mercy is shown by God's people. We pray that the examples we have seen from your word tonight, as well as other instruction we see in scripture, will help us to understand what generosity is and how it looks in our day-to-day lives. And most importantly, please help us to have a heart attitude about generosity that is driven by the love and grace you have shown us through the gift of salvation that you have provided by your Son and our Savior, Jesus Christ. In Jesus' name we pray these things.